Hello, Trombone Internet. This is Chris Van Hoff, assistant to the regional manager of the International Trombone Festival. We at the festival, of course, are huge fans of the pod, and we are really excited to invite you to attend this year's 2024 International Trombone Festival at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. Dave Begnosh is our host. We have the world premiere of a brand new double concerto for trombone and piano with the Fort Worth Symphony. We have the American Brass Quintet. We have late night jazz featuring a Latin jam session. Like everything is happening, all the cast will be there. It's the best hang in the world, and we hope to see you there. You can register for the festival still online at www.internationaltrombonefestival.com, and it's happening the last week of May. So go register. We'll see you in Texas. Welcome to the Trombone Retreat, podcast of the Third Coast Trombone Retreat. Today on the podcast, we talk to Michigan State Professor Ava Ordman. My name is Sebastian Vera, and I'm joined, as always, by Nick Schwartz. Good morning, sir. Guten Morgen. Oh, wow. Oh, we're German today. That's German? I think so. I was talking to a German person yesterday, actually, and the only thing I know how to say in German is, Wo ist die Toiletten? Or, wo... It's toilette. I always mix up the last part. That's where's where's the toilet? Yeah, I, I got I it. translated for you. Thank you. <laughs> you Germansplained me. Wow. Well, it's a beautiful morning, and this talk was really, really freaking cool. Ava Ordman is been a professor for a very long time, and she she's about to retire from Michigan State University. She was principal trombone in the Grand Rapids Symphony when she was 19 and played there for, for 24 years. And just like a fascinating life. Yeah, I would say the conversation, we kind of took a left turn and talked about some certain things that, while I consider very related to the trombone, definitely aren't directly related. And I, I just thought it was an interesting conversation, something a little unusual for us, I'd say, in a, in a very good way. On the Patreon this month, we are starting to invite guest artists to give trombone tips, which has been very cool. David Bender is this past month talking about soft playing and getting back into shape for the season. We're going to have a lot more guest tips, so subscribe at our Patreon at patreon.com slash trombone retreat. And if you like what you're hearing, we hope you do, and you're not subscribed, you're missing out. You don't want to be behind the times, right? When we release a new episode, you get a little ding on your phone. Helps us, helps you, helps the world. I'm pretty sure it it, it solves the the climate crisis. It, yeah, is, is Darfur still a thing? Common cold. <laughs> is, is Darfur still a thing? <laughs> yeah. Yikes! Uh, I'm actually happy to say we're in the final stages with production imminent of my signature mouthpiece line with Houghton Horns. We've done lots of research and development with various prototypes over the last couple of years, and it's a modern take on a classic design. It's a unique mouthpiece unlike anything currently on the market. Vibrant response and resonance with depth of sound is a unique part we're chasing. It's come out really beautiful. I'm really excited. So it's available soon at HoutonHorns.com. Stay tuned. You know, if you get that mouthpiece, you can say JSV is the mouthpiece for me. Wow, you just you just saved us thousands in marketing costs with that amazing slogan. <laughs> Please enjoy this interview with Ava Ordman. Please.
nice space. Is it okay? It's sort of dark. I was about to say, it looks lovely. It looks very comfortable and professorly in there. Would you rather I have that light on or not? It doesn't matter. Oh, it's fine. It doesn't matter. You look fantastic. Oh, yeah, right. By the way. (laughs) Almost 70. Coming right up. That's amazing. Brand new knees. I know. It is amazing. Like, how the hell? I never thought I'd make it to 40. And, <laughs> and you know, it's weird because I cared, but I didn't care as much. And now it's like I just want to hang on to every moment if I can, you know? Mm. It goes so fast when you get it this age. I love that. Are you finding that you are able to, like, be present and hang on to moments? Better. I mean, COVID actually helped me slow down and go, like, wow, I like my house. <laughs> I really wanted to get that fireplace. I've got these mantles in my house. It's a 91-year-old house. Wow. And I've got these mantles with no fireplaces. And I'm, I thought they were when I bought the house, but there's no chimney. And I kept thinking, oh, someday I'm going to do that. And I finally, I put a ventless one in because we couldn't figure out a way to vent it. But it's just so nice to have a fireplace. Oh, and living up there in the winter? A bunch of different things, yeah. What were your other hobbies during covid well, it started out eating. <laughs> that was one of mine. And then too. I had to go. I had to go on a, a what do you call it? A keto diet, and I lost a lot of weight to the point where I had to make myself eat because I got in that zone and I'd never been there before. Because I'm an eater, you know. It's like, oh my god, I better eat something because I'm losing weight too fast. But yeah, you know, for me that this whole it was about four years ago when I started having to deal with a bad back where I injured my lip, it all sort of hit me. And it was at the same time my mom was in the end of her life and I was picking her up and I've always had a bad back, but it would go away after a while. You know, I could sit in a hot tub. I could, you know, get, go to the chiropractor. This never went away. Hmm. And then the sciatica came after doing risotto. I mean, it just was like, I felt like I got old overnight and now I'm just trying to, do everything I can to be mobile. Cause I, my big issue is my mom's side are all, all have osteoarthritis. My dad's side all died of heart attacks. And supposedly at this point, my heart's okay. But after I just had a knee replaced a few weeks ago in the process, you may even hear it in my voice. The nurses were giving me medication without food. And my, I have esophagitis from that. And so they sent me to the emergency room and then they sent me to the card- cardiologist and there were a couple of the people I met there were incompetent and I found a really good guy in Grand Rapids. And then when I went to see him with all the information, he said, well, you know, I don't think I would have sent you to a cardiologist with the information you got from the emergency room because they did a CAT scan. They're looking for clots and stuff. And it was the esophagitis that sent me. So it's been a shit show. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about you, Nick, but I, all I hear is just a bunch of excuses. A... <laughs> Trust me, it's you... trying to do everything I can to. I got the other knee replaced, a... so hopefully you're a rock star. You're a rock star. Are you kidding? That's. I just wanna. I want to have fun the last, you know, whatever quarter of my life or whatever it is, because it just went by so fast. You know, uh, just to make levity of a of a heavy situation, I, I remember when I joined the ballet, I was the youngest brass player by 25 years, and we were waiting to go in the pit for something, and 
all the all the other brass players were standing around talking about, oh yeah, I gotta go in and get this done. I gotta get this tweaked, this looked at. And the principal Tremonis looked at me and goes, Nick, when you get older, every conversation turns into an organ recital. <laughs> 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 that, that is so true. When I get with my people my age, that's all we talk about. And then we get drunk, you know, or something like that. Some things never change. <laughs> or have some gummies or something. You know, there you go. Like, yeah. You can do that in Michigan now. Yeah. Gummy bears is what we're talking about. Yeah. Horrible. Horrible. I, of course. I, I love having colleagues that are, you know, a decade, two decades older than me because they're going through exactly what I'm going to be going through. So it's like, there's so much wisdom around whenever you're experiencing something. I just turned 40. So like you're saying, like it it goes by quick, huh? I'll tell you, I wish somebody, and you know, I think when I was young, you know, your parents always say, stand up straight and all that, like, and fortunately I did martial arts and got to see myself and went, oh, I need to work on my posture. And it got better just from doing it for so many years. What kind of martial arts? Uh, taekwondo. Oh. Mm. Did it for about 15 years and ended up teaching children's classes for about seven before I moved to Detroit. What? So what level did you get to? Second degree, Black. Oh, my gosh. Wow, you were serious. My God. I didn't start that way. I started just doing it for exercise. No, I meant like you got to it like a serious level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, literally, I started it because I wanted to do something, exercise, and I loved watching John Paul Van Damme <laughs> <John Claude. laughs> take people's butts on TV. Yeah, you know, the, it's the, like yes, the muscles from Brussels. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I watched what was it called? Something blood, blood sport. Blood sport, blood sport is such a good course. movie. The greatest sport, I was sports montage. I watched it. And I would like. I watched it with one of my teachers one night. And we were just like standing up and getting into the. You know, it was like <laughs> I was a lot younger then. But is that no, the I didn't one that started until I I in, I was in my forties? Wow, is that the one that has push it to the limit during the push the, it to the limit? Yeah, during the sports monta- montage. That's probably in every action. Oh movie. my god, man, that's so cool though. Man, I would be so uh, intimidated not to be prepared for a lesson if if my my teacher had a <laughs> double black belt. Well, I mean, how many years ago was that when I I tried when I moved to Detroit to work as a psychologist? I tried to find a place to continue studying Taekwondo, and the grandmaster of my organization lived in Jackson. Oh, Michigan. please call it a dojo. <laughs> it is. Well, I guess it was a dojo, but I mean, we did it at schools, gymnasiums, <laughs> you know, I did it at the Michigan Athletic Club. So his dojo, um, there were some people on the east side of the state that were teaching and I went to a few classes and it, one was in Ann Arbor, it was a schlep and the guy wasn't that good. I, he might've been, but I didn't feel the connection. And the older I get, the more important that is for me, if I'm going to be involved, that's why Finding the right doctor. If I don't feel like I can talk to somebody, I'm not. I got to look elsewhere, you know. And so that's what happened. Then I got into yoga, which was great for my back. And so I lived in Royal Oak in Detroit area. There was a place right by me. It was wonderful. and, And my back was much better. And I did that three days a week. And I was at the Y doing weight training and stuff because that was very helpful to me as a trombonist. Then I get the gig here, you know, and I'm going to the gym and I've got a trainer. I can't find anybody that I like to do yoga with. I tried Tai Chi again because I'd done that once. 
and the person wasn't very good. And so I just, it seems like I, I didn't really totally let myself go, but I wasn't, I wasn't finding the time that I had when I was primarily just playing. I think te- the, the teaching gig is different. Yeah. It's, it's a lot, there's a lot more time. Because so, what we do, especially when we're performing, like these things that these outside pursuits you're talking about are, are so wonderful, right? Because when the majority of your career is sitting in a chair and putting pressure on your body mentally and physically, you know, you need to find things that are doing the opposite mode. So yoga, martial arts, that's amazing. I'm curious as a full-time professor, how the, the physical toll is, is it a lot of sitting and standing still kind of thing? And like, what's the most amount? Well, now I'm sitting all the time because of my back and Mm. my knees and all that. It's different from when I was younger. When I was younger, I stood all the time. I had my students stand all the time. And now, you know, I also learned throughout my life, taking auditions and working with other students that actually sitting, especially when I worked on excerpts, was helpful as far as grounding me. Hmm. And I never sat when I was a kid. Every lesson I went to with all my teachers always stood. So it was like, should I? allow people to sit? Should I sit? And and it did work for several of my students so much better as far as nerves went. Interesting. They definitely could be rock more rock solid. And, and there is like fatigue also from standing. I recorded a CD five years ago. I stood in all the rehearsals. And then we got there, I went, you know what? How am I going to stand for five hours here? So I sat. And one thing that helped me since I move when I play, is it made it easier for me not to move so much. We had the mic mm. in one spot and it it was it, in the long run it was much more helpful for me to have done that. So I recorded my whole CD sitting down. Huh. I never would have and I decided the day of the first recording. You know, you know I have I have a a policy for my own teaching and it comes from my own uh time as a student. You know, I always stood in lessons and I never thought to even question standing and about my junior year of college i was studying with don harwood who's you know pretty 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 square i mean was in the military just that mm-hmm. very matched that his personality matched that and um i wouldn't i guess i guess in retrospect i wouldn't have guessed that this uh, advice or this kind of openness to the situation would have come from him because traditionally like you're saying it's like you stand in lessons and one day he asked me he goes how do you practice? Do you practice sitting or standing? And I'm in my lesson standing and I go, well, I always practice sitting. And he goes, well, why the hell are you standing? (laughs) Sit down. (laughs) And he's like, it's, it's about repetition and recreating your, you know, like, like trying to recreate things over and over again, you know? And so it's something I, I offer to my students because of that. Cause I, 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 I felt like, I never asked permission, but I was given permission. And I thought it was it, for some reason, even so it's so simple, but it, it, I was like, yeah, that's how I prefer. I prefer to play. I prefer to play sitting. I always have. And see, I never sat ex- except performing, you know, in the band or orchestra. Right, I did but right. even all my practice sessions. I'd always stand. And there is a, there is some fatigue, even if you're young from just standing for two hours or three hours as you practice, you know, the, the challenge for me, I mean, I love sitting, but the challenge for me as a tall, I'm six four, and the 
if the chair's not tall enough for me, then I'm like having to activate like my lower back muscles to like sit up straight. And then that constrains breathing and it's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I have to make sure like the whole, I think I heard it from Al Bear first where you like, you always want to make sure your hips are above your knee level. And that way you can like free up all those muscles. Um, if I can do that, it's awesome. And I do, I do think there's something to this. I don't know if I've ever said this out loud to anyone that being closer to the ground, I feel like it's a different sonic experience. Like you can hear a little bit different feedback or more feedback from the sound hitting the floor when you're closer to it. But the the idea of being more grounded, it sort of makes sense Mm -hmm. because you've got your feet and your ass, you know, everything is sort of, there's a connection there so that it may free up other things, whatever. It just, I never even thought about it. And then I'm sitting and now I practice sitting for obvious reasons. And several concertos that I've done over the past few years after I hurt my back, I sat and that was weird. Speak. And I said, well, I might have to sit. <laughs> and the conductor says, ah, Perlman sits. You know? It's I'm true. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's, there, like I said, well, like what I led off my statement with is like it, there's a stigma around it. And I remember I've talked to, I don't know, probably 50 different people about what would it be like if I gave a recital sitting down? And, or at least on a stool or something like that, mm-hmm. just cause I, it, for me, it's not, it's not just the grounded, like, like Sebastian was talking about, or that you're talking about Ava necessarily. It's also just like, I'm the opposite of you. I like to try to not move when I play in something about the stability of just feeling like I'm like locked in, like in, in a spot. And it, ju- it just makes me feel, I guess circle back, it makes me feel grounded, but in kind of like a really physical way, mm-hmm. you know, and I've gotten results all over the map. Mostly people are like, eh, free to do you and me, but some people are just like, that's no good. Because of the visual aspect that. of it. Yeah. yeah. And unless you're hurt or you know, something's going on, don't do that. And I'm just like, but why? What? I mean, you see a cellist sit and you think enough, you think nothing of it. I mean, I prefer my cellist to stand personally. They could pull their end pin out long enough to play. They really could. And so why don't they? You see bases well, sit on stools. When you know? I had to, had to sit, I went out shopping for stools and I ended up buying two different stools. One that's just a, a black metal stool and the other has a back on it. But it's high. It looks like one that maybe is at the breakfast bar in your kitchen or something. But it was tall enough and it was really heavy that that's what I used. And one of the concerts that I played on, there's a video recording of it. And it almost looked like I was standing because I was the conductor was short and I was sitting on this high stool. My feet could touch the ground, though, and I felt more secure. And and my back, it, it made me... It made it possible for me to play the piece. There, I don't think I could have stood at that point. There, there's a certain groundedness to to Taekwondo too, right? Like a certain feeling your stance, feeling your your core. Yep. Everything. Well, I didn't certainly didn't think about it in those days, but it seems like everything that I have done and just in life in general is related. If you can find where it is, and that. I'm not saying I don't think I did it consciously, but there was I, I sought something different from my music because I needed some balance in my life. And then I, and I had already started working out. 
and lifting weights and found a trainer. But I was joking with one of my students earlier today that when I went, everybody's saying, oh, there's this new club in Grand Rapids called the Michigan Athletic Club. It's really great. It was right at the beginning of all this clubs now. It was Grand Rapids' first club. And I think there might've been a YMCA there at the time that was like sort of a dive where only guys went and, you know, it was in like a basement or something. So they opened this big club and now I'm, I don't like to exercise. Nah, nah, nah. And then finally I went and I thought, okay, I'm going to get on a bike for 96 calories and I'm going to drink a light beer. <laughs> and that's how I started. And there weren't craft beers then. So that was a good enough beer. And then it was like, oh, I could do twice that and have two beers. And then maybe I'll do a little more, you know, and still have a couple of beers. And then I, I just got sort of the bug for it and started doing aerobic stuff. Then I saw this really sort of humongous guy who was started the weight training program there. And I hooked up with him as a trainer. And then that started a whole nother thing, three days a week doing weights, ex, you know, doing aerobic every day and then doing martial arts first, just twice a week for myself and then adding two more days to teach. So it, it was, I was at that club every day. So, so this whole philosophy and all these, this balance, like what did, what did you take from these things that, that you could apply to music? Well, for playing the horn, it brought both my sides became more equal mm. because my left side's always been mm -hmm. the side that holds my horn and is really solid. And then this is my loose side, even though I'm stronger on this side. But I discovered I, I evened everything out. And that was at the time when I was doing the Herb Concerto and stuff like that. And it just my life was it was so much easier to play and stand and all that. You know, it just uh, it was really I was lucky that I just happened to say, OK, I'm going to go burn off 96 calories <laughs> and got the bug. And I, I think I'm sort of that might be a part of my personality that. If I do anything, I'm going to do it all the way. But it also sometimes keeps me from doing things because I know how the commitment's going to be. You can't half-ass it. You can't just be I, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to casually start learning this. No, you're either on or off, right? I'm a little different now as I've gotten older. It's okay to try things and now oh, this doesn't work. But yeah, it was a part of my pathology, you know. Where, where'd you grow up? Lockport, Illinois. Illinois. It's uh, about 25 miles southwest of Chicago by Joliet. I don't know if that's the Illinois state pen is in between Lockport and Joliet. And so you've been, yeah. you've been in Midwest for a majority of your life. Yep. I left. Well, I went to Interlochen uh, my junior and senior in high school for the summer camp. Got a scholarship to Michigan. And I had already gone on a trip to Japan in high school with Dr. Ravelli. Oh man. Oh, and, I heard lots of stories from Kitzman about him. Oh yeah. And he was a tyrant and mean and uh, I loved it. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I wanted to please him. I wanted to show him that I could do what he wanted me to do. And it ended up being a great experience, but I had Michigan then in my mind and I wasn't, from a family of musicians, people didn't, no one really knew how to guide me. What did your parents do? My father was a grocer and my mother was a nurse before she started having a bunch of kids. And then she stopped. 
That grocer life, though, I mean, that, that's, that's a lot of hours. A lot of, and he was gone a lot. Yeah, he started as a butcher. His father was in the grocery business. He went to school at University of Illinois, but then he and his brother both left school and came back and went in the business with him. You're describing my grandfather right now. I know my mom's listening and freaking out because yeah, <laughs> my grandfather owned a, owned a grocery store, was a butcher his whole life with his brother, and he took, oh took it over from his father. And it's just those, I, I remember my mom telling me about the hours they'd put in. It's way more than people think. And I actually still have the, his butcher block table that's been there. They had in the store since like the early 1900s was left to me in the will. So I have that. It's, it's really cool. One of my sisters has the one from our first store. I think that was my grandfather's. Yeah. Oh man. So how'd you get the music bug? Well, there weren't a lot of things for girls to do back then. And I always so you picked the trombone. There was nothing. There were no sports. I didn't know anything about the trombone, but I thought it was. I always loved uniforms. I'd watch all the shows on TV, and I'd march around my dad's grocery store like I was in the Marines or something like that when I was a kid. And we did in fourth grade. We had the test and. The band director called my parents and said I scored was I don't know if it was a top score, one of the top scores, and that they should buy me an instrument. And at first I instead of renting one. And at first it was like, wow, the tuba's really big and cool. And I mean, the confusion I think I felt as a young girl and not being able to be in sports and not having anything that was fun. The boys were having fun and I I tried to join in, but it just wasn't going to happen. And so they brought people to school to play, and the trombone looked great. So my parents said, okay. And I was eight years old, started playing a trombone. Eight years old. Wow. Yeah. Wow, 61 really young. years. Man. Long ass time. <laughs> that's crazy to think by the time you were 16 – you had been playing the trombone for half of your life. And by the time of 17, you'd been playing it for a majority of your life. And that's why she's, right? that's why she had a job when she was 19. <laughs> Guess so. That, that'll do it. See, I'm less impressed now that you had a principal job at 19. You, you, <laughs> you got like a three year head start, you know, but you know, it was, and I don't think it came from a healthy place. It came from this, sadness that even the girls, I was in the girl scouts and the girl scouts, we didn't get to camp the same way the guys did. Mm. They, they lay on the ground with their sleeping bags. We had tents and I was like pissed off. I mean, pardon my French, but I was like, come on, we can handle it. You know, we <laughs> girls can handle it. You wanted rough and tumble, huh? Yeah. I just wanted to feel like there were, there weren't so many, it didn't, it just felt like there's so many restrictions on who I was because I was a girl. Mm. Not because of anything else about me. Were you the only female trombonist, like in your? At that point, yes. Then one of my friends joined, but she joined because it was all boys. She wasn't <laughs> For different half of the guys in the section. Oh, jeez. <laughs> we had sixteen trombones. Yeah. Do you think part of you was attracted to that though, to kind of prove? And like you said, you wanted to hang out with like the way the boys camped out. Like I want to, I can play an instrument that the boys play, kind of thing. You know, I didn't think of it at that point. I just, brass appealed to me. And it probably was because it was a more, a boy thing, a masculine. There's no way I was going to play flute. It felt like I was, would be pigeonholed again because I 
shouldn't because people said, nobody, girls don't play trombone. Girls don't play tuba. And so when I got the green light to do it, you know, my parents didn't know anything about music. So they insisted we take lessons, my siblings and myself. And it was, you know, I'm grateful for that. I didn't always have the best teachers. I had to sort of find my way to the best teachers, but it was very important time for me every week to sit with an adult, a man who I felt cared about. He cared about me. I didn't have necessarily that feeling in my family because my mom had, we had so many kids, you know, it just mm. wasn't. How many? Yeah. Well, she had five in seven years and then she had one later and wow. 12 years later, 12 or 14. I don't know. And where were you? Second. Second. Second of oh, a big wow. family. So you don't have like the, the responsibilities like the oldest one has, but you're still like one of the... Well, that might be somewhat debatable because my brother was sick. My older brother was sick. He was um, borderline cerebral palsy. He was mm. a preemie. Mm. And in 1952, he had a lot of, you know, just issues. And very smart and, you know got through school and everything like that. But at the time he had to go to see a special doctor on a regular basis to work on his coordination and so forth. And to be honest with you, I didn't realize it till much later is I was jealous of him Mm. because of all the attention he got. And it sounds sort of weird to even say that, but I was like, Oh my God, he gets to go to Dr. Perlman's and play with all those toys. And once I think once I got to go and sort of watch and it was just like, Oh man, why am I healthy? You know, Mm. why can't I do this? And it fed into that thing that girls aren't as important as boys, even though it really had nothing to do with that. But for me at that age, it, I was affected by that a lot. And I I do think even to this day, probably my androgyny is somewhat based on, on my early life, just wanting to be who I was Hmm. and not fit these, you know, my mother kept buying me pink things and I wouldn't take them. (laughs) I thought about this a lot just because like, um, I'm a firm believer that like, no matter what instrument we play, we play our personality and it's like a really, it's a great, like, I think you have an advantage if your personality fits kind of the the role in the orchestra of, of that personality of instrument. So, you know, like thinking about the trombone, generally speaking, it's a pretty like outspoken instrument, you know? And so like when you said, when you said like, oh, I, I couldn't play the flute and I'm like, you know, knowing you, it's like, no way you could play the flute, you know? <laughs> Like, so your personality matches the, your, your personality matches the trombone. I think it is a compliment, you know, of course we're trombone players, Yeah, yeah. but you know, when you say that, I think that my trombone was my voice Hmm. and he, it, in so many ways it, it spoke for me because I discovered it by practicing, I got better. So I wanted to practice a lot so I could beat everybody. And and at that time was beating all the boys, you know, and it was a pathology. It wasn't the healthiest thing, but it, it, it gave me a lot early on. The first time I went to Interlock and I thought, oh my, I was scared. I didn't know what it'd be like there. And I think that first summer I was third. And then the second summer I was first in band and orchestra and I wasn't going to let anybody beat me that whole summer. And it was 
I'm not, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. You know, And so that, that drive, I think I'm fortunate. I, I, it was fortunate for me. And I, when I see, especially students that don't have any of that, I don't know how they're going to get where they want to go unless they have that little bit of that cutthroat kind of feel. They don't have to have what I had, but I actually, when I first started teaching, not necessarily at Michigan state, because I've taught my whole life, I thought everybody was like me, hmm. oh. that everybody would want to practice I and everybody it. would want to be the best they could be. And uh, <laughs> no way. Yeah. I, I sometimes I feel like chicken little where I'm just like going to them like, you know, the sky is falling. Come on. You got to do something about it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the same old stories like, OK, I guess you don't want to, you know. Yes, I do. <laughs> OK. So, so yeah. You, you still competitive? You still feel competitive? Well, certainly not like that. And it's been these last four years because I did have this injury and I've kept playing, sort of limping along, have had some successes, but the fun of playing has, well, it's not it's not there because I have to think about everything I mm. do when I play. I can't pick up my horn without where's my embouchure. Mm. I never had to do that in my life. And it's because I have no feeling in the left top. Oh, and, and that's from the injury? Yeah. I, I mean, I've been working with this guy in Australia. What's his name? Franco DeSerto, I think. I've worked with a lot. I've talked to everybody. And initially, when I told you about it, John or Sebastian, what do you want me to call you? <laughs> <laughs> I call, think he, call him JS, just like the composer. Oh, my J. God. Yeah. Well, I've always called you Sebastian. And yeah. I John, I went, oh, you know. But I remember we talked about this at Third Coast one summer. That's when I think Pete was there and those mm -hmm. guys were there. And you said, you should talk to Pete because he had something similar. And I did. And Dave Murray had something going on. And so I followed up with the same things that they did. And then, of course, I spent a lot of time talking to Colin online, mm -hmm. trying to and followed sort of his footsteps to a certain degree. And it was this. It wasn't the same mm. because and I think. Now, after working with this gentleman in Australia, my lip went numb when I was playing a gig, hmm. the top lip, and I kept playing and I sounded fine and it felt okay, except I couldn't feel this night. One of my students was playing second and I just said, hey, Aaron, you know, Aaron, right? He yeah. was playing second. He goes, I said, have you ever had this happen? He goes, you sound fine. Don't worry about it. Maybe it's your spit valve. You maybe need it. I said, so I went, checked it out. It wasn't. And then the next, later that week, because it was one of these weeks where this was an extra gig and it was a big band gig and the part, it's all these ledger lines. And I just got back from doing my recital tour for my sabbatical and felt really, I felt like I was back, you know, because I'd been really working hard on playing as an older person because my tonguing slowed down. I was really working hard to, to keep things going. And then this started. And we also had this, what was it, a Bernstein concert at the end of the week. It was a pickup band that Teddy Abrams did. He'd go around and put these groups together. And again, a lot of playing in that. And I'm sitting next to Justin Emmerich. I said the same thing. Hey, you know, have you ever had that? Hey, ah, you sound great. Don't worry about it. So I just kept playing. And then we also were doing a sort of a showcase concert at Michigan State early the next week as part of auditions. And I just, that's the first time I sat 
to play, and I decided not to do the solo, just play with the quintet, because I got a really sharp pain there. Mm. And I've had injuries before with sharp pains that overuse, stop for a week, play soft for another week, add a little range and low, add a little range, a little volume, and four or five weeks, I'm back. Essentially, that's how I had dealt with these in the past. And I was upset it had happened because I thought it was in really good shape. But I saw all those legend lines and I said, mm-hmm. eh, you know, should we get somebody else to play lead? I could play second. Should I play a small horn? Nah, my chops are good now. What about a mouthpiece? Put some, nah, I'm going to play it. I can do it. And, you know, that's just sort of my old crap from my youth that came back and said, yeah, you can do it. You, can, mm. you know, you got to do it instead of, I don't have to do that. Sort of set myself up for that one. And then that one is still plaguing me. Do you have any idea what, what triggered the, the, the injury? Well, Pete and all these other folks were saying that they had a micro tear. Mm-hmm. That's what the diagnosis was. And it turned out that There's a guy in Baltimore I talked to, and he believed that's what it was. And I think I did. What I think happened now, hindsight and having worked with all these different people, I when I injured myself before, I didn't have this numb, numbing sensation for several days before the injury came. It was either nerve damage, according to this guy in Australia, or a dystonia. And in order for me to continue, I just jammed it into my face. Mm. And I wasn't aware of it because I couldn't feel it. And then that caused the injury. And then I started dealing with it as if it was the old injury. And at first, after a few weeks, I had a couple of sessions because I was working on this concerto. I I played one day, I just played like my old self. And I went, I am back. And then the next day, it didn't feel as good. Then the next day, it was all back to where it was. Mm. And that's sort of been the experience. Well, you know, as brass players, as as, well as musicians, we are elite athletes of very small muscles. Correct. And... And you see athletes do this too. They have trouble with a hamstring or they have trouble with their quad. And like, you know, they, there's, there's um, scouts at at a practice. Oh, you look great out there today. Yeah. You know, I'm feeling great. I'm going to be awesome on Saturday ball. And then it's the next day they're out, you know, and it's like, and it's just, you know, number one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Aaron Rodgers. He just just didn't want to play the Cowboys. He didn't want to play the Cowboys this weekend. That's all. You know, that's been the last four years I've been Mm. dealing with that and, you know, continuing to play. But I don't know how much longer unless something shifts because I'm still playing every day. And over COVID, I never took a day off. Really? It was always basics, you know, trying to find. I actually at one point moved my whole embouchure to the right. And I got to the point where I could play pretty darn good with that. I played a couple of orchestra concerts with it. And I thought, okay, this is okay. And then because of all the years of abuse, I had a lot of scar tissue mm. inside this lip and it started splitting Oh, because of the sh- shape with the yeah, aperture yeah, over yeah. here. And I had acupuncture. <laughs> it was a good thing we were wearing masks at the time because, I mean, I literally had purple <laughs> on my face. Oh, geez. And it hurt like hell. And I don't think it helped. It might have helped. But once I start playing again, it just popped. It I right mean, away. I... I was I remember still talking to Colin about this and 
just as much as that was difficult physically, I just, I can't imagine how tough it is mentally just because the trombone is such a part of your identity. It's a part of how you earn a living. It's a part of how you express yourself. And when that all of a sudden is gone, it's like you feel a drop. Yeah. I kept believing sort and again, I think this all comes from when we're younger and how we survive and thrive that I could fix it. I don't think I'm going to fix it. It's just been trying to find a way where I could enjoy what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I've had some moments over the last few years, but most of the time it's really like, can I get through this? Okay, here, let's go. All right. That went okay. Bam. And everybody's, Oh, you sounded great. And I'm like, thank you. It didn't feel good. I had, I couldn't play my whole my whole playing career, when I got to the point where I could really play the horn well, and I love to do concertos and things like that, was to be able to go out there and play with abandon. Mm. Just sort of tune into the music and and go for it and trust that things would work. And I can't do that now. There's very little of playing with abandon. It's abandonment. It's all like, okay. What do you got to do to get through this? Okay, we got to go up there, make sure that the embouchure is set this way and so forth. So I imagine it's not fun. I imagine in a way just having to analyze so many things has helped your teaching even further, though. Absolutely. I think my students have, I've been able to get my students more having gone through this experience. Not that <laughs> I would, I would change it in a heartbeat and never have had it happen, but I'm I'm experiencing, you know, I've had students with Valsalva. I've had that mm-hmm. in my life too. And there was nobody even talking about it in those days. Some musicians, players wouldn't talk about it. It was too, sh- there's too much shame attached to it or whatever. You know, we do that kind of stuff. And I just started blowing air through the horn and I got past it by going, two, two. So everything I would do, I'd have a like, Blow air first, and then mm. t- tongue it hard, and I got I got past it. Yeah, so I had a I had a student who was very similar. He he won an audition with the Vasalva thing, and his his solution was using a K tongue for the like the the first note after like a bre- like a like the first note of an excerpt or something like that. He would start with a K, and then because for him it just like that would shake it up enough that everything else would be fine after that. It was, it's a lot of it is mental, if not all, you know, I mean, for our listeners, Ava, that don't quite know what that is. Could you, could you explain kind of what you've seen with students that have it and things that might've helped? Well, when I first heard other people doing it, I I could hear, I think a horn player earlier in life, I heard somebody have, and then I thought that was weird. What was going on? And, um, it's not until you experience yourself that you get a sense of, oh, and it was funny because we were doing Bartok Concerto for Orchestra in Grand Rapids. And I was backstage and I was just going, dum, ding, da, 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 dum, da, dum, ding, da, da, you know, the little solo. And I went, bum, bum. After playing it a couple of times, that happened. And I went, what the heck? And it started. Hmm. I played, it wasn't a, an issue in the orchestra. And for the most part, when there was a conductor, I could play. See just do this, mm-hmm. but it went on for a long time. White Henderson was playing second trombone at the time. He's in Kansas City now, 
And he, one day it was just cause I, I could play the concert, but I'd try to warm up and do this stuff. He goes, man, it's amazing what the mind does to screw us up, you know? And so I just kept trying to get past it. And I discovered one day by just blowing air and then coming in hmm. the cuss sound is a good idea though, too. I had a student with it once and she would sort of, she'd tap her foot, one, two, three, four, pump, and that helped her get beyond it. And there is some woman in Chicago now who is working with people. And I, a, a, a recent student did some work with her and it helped him a lot. So basically it's just, you know, you, you'll see it in students when they're just trying to start a note and they just, when they try to start, there's like a hesitation, like the yips kind of thing you can't right? get the air out yeah you were asking about what is valsalva i didn't know the name of it for the longest time sometimes um, it's better right that you don't know like don't you think sometimes if if you see a student struggling and you tell them that's a thing and that it has a name and you have it like it makes it worse right well i had a few kids after one guy had it pretty severely for a while got over it somebody else came in so i think i said no you don't you do not have it just play your horn i was like because it's so easy to, you're right, just the the power of suggestion or having one moment where it doesn't, that's what happened to me. I, I think I think it's akin to like, you ever say a word like 10, 15 times in a row and it stops sounding like a word and then you're thinking about that word and is that mm-hmm, how you say mm-hmm, it? It's, just, mm-hmm. it's this like mental like loop and mental gymnastics that we play with like this simple action of going... You know, and anyone, I, I mean, look, I'm sure Ava, you would agree with this away from the horn. You could easily go, that's not a problem. Or even maybe create a buzz that way, but you put the horn up and it's, there's something that's it's like, it opens a file cabinet in your brain that just like, yeah, you know, cause I, I had it in late high school, early college. So, um, I, I agree. I know what it feels like. And it's one of those things that you either know what it feels like and you can, you can try to help people um, if you have students or you don't know what it feels like and you try the best as you can as a teacher to deal with it. But like you said about, um, you know, like your, your students right now are benefiting kind of from your struggle with your current issues right now. And you'd give it up in a second. Like I would never want to go through that Vesalva thing again, but I do think it has given me a leg up in teaching it because I went through it. Well, I don't know if this happened to you, but it seems like whenever a student, and I've had a few over the years, starts it, then I get it. It's like, what the heck? Is this in the water or something? So I feel it. You know, it's not, it doesn't take over, but I'll have it happen one day. I go, okay, so-and-so is dealing with this. So I got to try to tell them what my experience is again. But I do think the easiest thing for people to do to start is to do just air attacks for Mm -hmm. a while. Just okay. to breathe, learn how to get the air moving again and the lips even just engaging. That seems to have cut the time down and give at least most of my students some hope mm-hmm. that they can play a little different way. And then eventually they're able to front the notes a little bit stronger and so forth. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about this over the summer, um, not to stay on this issue for too long, but you know, in, in, in the sports world, this is called the yips, right? You see a, right. you see a basketball player who's like, they're just like an absolute threat from anywhere on the court. And then they get to th- throw a free throw and it's like, they can't, they can't do it. You yeah. know, like, and the catcher can't it. throw it back to the pitcher. 
you know, or the pitcher can't throw to first base, you know, and, and stuff like that. You see this stuff in all sports, uh, a golfer trying to, trying to do a little chip shot and they just get all like hung up. And it's like, first of all, it's a great visual rep- representation of what we're going through. It's like mm-hmm. this simple thing that they've done 100 trillion times in their life. And, but the thing that I always use that analogy, but the thing I unpacked from that further recently and just thinking about it is like, you look at these players, be it whatever sport. And it's like, uh, it's easy to say, oh man, like I'm really struggling at my instrument right now, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, in reality, you're struggling with one aspect of the instrument, but it's like, you look at like, these could be elite athletes and they just have trouble with one aspect of doing something. And it's like, you're not going to say that they're a crappy golfer or baseball or basketball player. It's like, they have this trouble with this one thing, you know? And it's like, they just accentuate their skills around that thing until they figure it out, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, it, it's just such a fascinating thing. Not not just the Vasalva thing, but it, it can apply to anything in music. It's just, it's such a mental game. There's so much, so much going on, you know? Well, I hadn't thought about the, the correlation between athletes and people get spooked, you know, and they just right. can't do it. And it's, you know, I talk about muscle memory and, and that whole sense of you lose faith and, you know, getting hope back and that kind of stuff. Oh God, it, it seems like it's so little, you know, and shouldn't be that big a deal, but it, it becomes for, mm-hmm. at least for me and for a lot of my students, it becomes all the focus. Mm. So, right. so, so Ava, zoom in, zoom in back a little bit. Speaking of your student's age, principal trombone, Grand Rapids symphony for 24 years. What did, what did you know about being a professional at the age of 19? Well, I felt very confident. I played in the Youth Orchestra Chicago for three years on orchestra, you know, in orchestra hall. I have a feeling confidence has never been a big issue with you. Oh, yeah. There have been a lot of moments of like self, like, oh, my God, what am I doing? I'm a fake, all that stuff, big time. But I think when I was younger... Before I had all kinds of performance anxiety issues, trust me, I've been there too, was like, you know, I went on stage with Orchestra Hall, Chicago, and I played principal my last two years there. And we got, I did a lot of great music. And then I go into Interlochen and we did eight orchestra concerts every summer, the two summers I was there. And I was also in the band. And then I got to Michigan and I was in the orchestra and then I got Grand Rapids. You're a hot And I just knew that if I knew my part and I'd get in there and I would just play. And some of it was from that early pathology that I'm going to show them I can do this. But it turned into my just feeling confident and joy in playing the horn. So the crap that drove me there started to dissipate when I I discovered it was really mine, you know, and it took a while to get there. So when I got the Grand Rapids gig, it was at that point just becoming, that was the beginning of it becoming a full-time professional orchestra. And bass trombonist was good. Second guy, eh, you know, uh, first trump was pretty good. And I just knew that I want to go in there and just play leave with my horn, which is what I tell all my students whenever they get called to do a gig or something, just play, just play your horn. Because if you're sitting with older people too, some people are very love having young 
blood in there and some are angry or jealous or whatever it is, which I've seen a lot of. And, and being a girl, it was also another could, could be a work against me if I didn't just go in and play. Back it up. Yeah. So I, when I got to Grand Rapids, I just was that way. And when I got to Michigan, I was that way as, you know, I, I don't, think I'm bragging, but my sophomore year, I was oh, principal and the wind ensemble with grad doctor own master students there. And part of my old competitive, I'm better. I'm going to beat him. I'm gonna beat him, you know, that kind of stuff. It just, I was not mean. I was always really pleasant. As a matter of fact, too pleasant, probably mm. my therapists would say that, um, I didn't want anybody not to like me. Mm. So I would say or do whatever, even if it wasn't right, just so people wouldn't be mad at me. It but, may you have also, me. but you also really wanted to beat them at the same time. Yes. Okay. So, ooh. Keep your keep your friends close and your enemies close. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a tight rope to walk. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, so, my 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 therapist told me, he said, you know, it's fantasy. Not everybody's going to like you. You just got to get used to it. It's just the way the world is. And, you know, he was right, of course. And then I discovered that I wasn't really in, in, in really honest in relationships with people when I mm-hmm. operated that way. And it, it ended up, I paid a price for it. People please. Not just me personally, but with the people I was with. Yeah. Once you started to achieve all these things, did the, because I mean, such a strong motivation was, you know, you clearly loved music, but you also wanted to like prove yourself and be first. Like once you had this position, you were professional and that stuff wasn't happening as much. Right. Did it, did your motivations regarding music change? I mean, I always loved to play, loved to play orchestra and I, but I also loved to solo. So I started moving a little bit in that, more in that direction. And then if I was in this quartet, American classic quartet before you guys' time with uh, the first group was Randy Hawes, Don Lucas, myself, and this gal, um, Nancy Fawcett, who wasn't as serious as the three of us were. And then I think John Meyer mm. came in. And then after that, it was Jay Evans. And then Charlie Vernon became the bass trombone. Last time we... We did play a concert here when I got the job, but prior to that, the last time was ITF in Ithaca, where we sort of premiered the Casterade and the Schneider Quartets. Oh, it's so hard. Not easy. God, was that hard. Don's playing high G's over there. And I'm like, why why do we keep playing stuff that saxophonists wrote for us? What are we doing? Yeah, I know. I don't know. But no, he's awesome. the, the program was way too long. Friedman was there. He comes and goes, what's wrong with you guys? Play like an hour and a half. I said, I don't know. I'm just doing what they tell me, you know. But that was, so that was exciting to have that outlet along with the orchestra gig. And uh, mm-hmm. then to to start to, you know, learn that Donald Erb concerto and get, get to play it at the American Symphony Orchestra League Conference. That was a big break for me because I got a lot of performances from that. And, you know, there was something in one of the emails I got about experiences in your life that changed your life. 
and Catherine Comey was uh, the conduct. She conducted the uh, American Symphony, and she was conducting Carnegie Hall. And Lynn Harrell was doing Donald Erb's Cello Concerto, mm. and she loved it. I don't think she was familiar with his music, and she goes, "I would love to do more of your music. What do you have?" And he said this, this, and he had written a, a concerto for the brass Chicago Symphony. I've got that. And he said, I have a trombone concerto. And I had been hitting her up to play with the orchestra to do Creston or something like that. And she just was, she goes, I have a trombonist who would love to play your piece. She would really be great in this. And Don Herb started laughing. She, <laughs> he said, this piece is too physical. I don't think a woman could play it. And Catherine Comey, she said, the hair stood up in the back of her said, Ava can play this piece. <laughs> so she gets it. She, it was written for Stu Dempster. So, you know, it's, oh. it's got a lot of multiphonics. It's got the didgeridoo imitation in the last movement. It's got all kinds of crazy things in it. And so she brings this to me and I'm going like, I wanted to do Creston <laughs> you know, I wanted, or Tomasi or, you know, I wanted to do And, so I just started trying to play it, you know, playing through some licks and stuff like that. And I even went out and, and took a lesson with Stu Dempster, a four-hour lesson that was wow. a major hoot. We had a ball. So, and he said, well, you sort of get in the grasp of it and stuff. So I just sort of kept messing around with it. And then I was at the gym working out and I called since, well, we didn't have cell phones or anything in those days. So I called my answering machine and there was a message did I want to do the herb at orchestra hall in Chicago in four weeks at the American symphony orchestra league conference. And I was like thinking to myself, I can't play it yet. And I said, yes. Cause it was one of those things that, you know, gotta, you gotta say yes, you gotta, you gotta take, go, go for it. And I, and I was with the guy who was playing second trombone. We were playing racquetball and the oboe player from the orchestra and stuff. And we just drank. We we're so excited about it. Yeah, you're going to do this. Let's get drunk. You know. So, you know. So, you know. Some people might just go practice at that moment. <laughs> that was mental but, practice at that point. But then I, I, I thought, oh my god, I got to do this thing. So I started working on it, and there's a lot of screaming and hollering in it. And this was, it was hot outside. And at that point, I was between houses, living with a friend and her kids. And I'm yelling and screaming and playing this thing upstairs. <laughs> and the cops came to the house. <laughs> and one, the little girl answered the door. And the police said, well, we, we heard, um, we've got reports that somebody might be having in danger here or something. They heard some screaming and stuff. And she goes, no, that's my friend Ava. She's playing the trombone. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's art. You wouldn't get it. <laughs> and then he's like, girls don't play trombone. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> now I know you're lying. <laughs> Come full circle. Oh, my yeah. God. And, and I barely got it together. Oh, yeah. And then I got a call like a week later saying, the concert was canceled oh, because what? the orchestra was going on strike or some kind of crazy thing like that. And I was relieved and upset at the same time. So I just, you know, just a couple of days later, I got a call and they said, well, the American Symphony Orchestra League did not want to start out the beginning of this event with an orchestra going under. So they funded it and it was back on. Oh, wow. And I swear it was just a couple of days before I left to go to Chicago where I started to feel like 
the piece was becoming mine. I did practice mm-hmm. a lot just to get it in my system. Did, it, did it fire you up at all to to hear the, the composer say that about a female playing it? At that point, it just scared me mm. <laughs> when I first heard it. Mm-hmm. But then I got to Chicago and we're going to do the first rehearsal. And there's Don Herb standing right in front of me in his cowboy boots. And he had a um, blue jeans and a blue jean jacket on. I think he had a cowboy hat on. And he's just looking at me. Mm. Sort of like, so what kind of things do you play in Grand Rapids? And I said, well, modern things. I said, well, we just did this piece by Schwantner. We did this. He says, commercial piece of bullshit. That's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. I'm feeling really comfortable around you. Yeah. <laughs> and I, at that point, thought maybe I'd a- ask him something about the piece. And then I said, no, I just got to go do it. Support. I can't change anything. Mm-hmm. So that first rehearsal, and there's a lot of weird stuff in there. Catherine was a wonder with modern music. She knew exactly the things she needed to tell the orchestra to do. And I don't know what those people thought either. Here they're bringing this chick in to play, you know. She doesn't even live here or anything like that. And and they wanted to sort of celebrate women because Catherine was conducting and they going to do this piece. And we played straight through the piece. And the very last note is like an X as high as you can mm-hmm. play going down. And I discovered, because the whole last movement, my sort of personal interpretation of it is because you're playing this didgeridoo and the sound comes and it feels like you're being overcome in the jungle. Mm. And then there's this huge cadenza, just do it. You play anything you want before the very end. And I discovered that I could scream louder than I could play high. So I just put the horn up to my lips bell up in the air and scream through the horn. And then as I came down, I moved the horn down. It was somewhat theatrical. And then the cops came. And <laughs> Well, the, the, the orchestra loved it. They went wild. Don Herb's walking up like this. And I'm like, shit. No. <laughs> and he says, I don't know about the scream at the end. And the whole orchestra goes, let her scream. Let her scream. And he goes, Okay. And I swear from that point on, Don and I became great friends. He and his wife, we played this all over the country and his wife would go with us. My mom got to know the herbs. I mean, it was, it was just really at the beginning of a special time. And that concert, I was downstairs and George Schulte's dressing room was right there. He has a picture of the Chicago bears up on the wall and I wasn't in that space, although I ended up in that space toward the end, but I had my practice room and people were sending me flowers and I felt like a fake and all this stuff. Like, how, what am I doing here? And I, I had learned how to do self-hypnosis for performance anxiety a few years before that. And I just focused and I visualized the whole performance from beginning to end. I just went through the whole piece, including the curtain calls and all this stuff at the end. And I went up and those days I recall going up a spiral staircase to the to the hall, and I'm just walking up the staircase, telling myself I love to play the trombone, I and that. I do that to this day. Whenever I and I tell my students, for, don't forget you love to play the trombone when you get so nervous. And I walked out on stage and I love played that. that piece exactly as I had visualized it. Mm. It was the most bizarre feeling, like I could wonderful go wrong. And at the end, even the 
I had three three curtain calls or something like that, and audience was on their feet. And here's this weird old piece we're playing that everybody it's really it's visceral. People's reactions are visceral to it. And I walked off stage and I just like what just happened? And I remembered the in school studying is it Abraham Maslow's theory of you know food, shelter clothing. There's this mm. pyramid you go up and the very Needs. top is called a peak experience. And cause I literally, and I, 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 I'm religious, but I'm not that religious, you know? And it's, I felt like I was just a medium for this music and it was just going through me. It was the most bizarre feeling. And from that point on, my goal was to feel it again. And I've like had a drug. Exactly. Like a drug. It was a drug. But it was profound because it changed me and sort of my paradigm, how I thought about things. And and it was after that time I started studying with this guy in, uh, not trombonist, a guy in uh, Vancouver, Washington, who was teaching a course called Science and the Life Force. And he worked with people to, to um, help relieve emotional blocks in their body that kept mm-hmm. them from self-actualization. And then I was also... It was sort of around that time I started therapy with this psychiatrist in Detroit, Dr. Barlabov, because I read his book and I was so fascinated by it. I wanted to meet him. Well, I met him. All right. And then I did. I don't know how many years with him, but I told him one day he was one of the best Ramon teachers I ever had because mm-hmm. I, all of that stuff really changed how I operated in my, in my, my personal system. And what it, what's important, what it's all about. And then, of course, I've got more things that have come from that. But that experience, and that was in 1988. And then I played at Carnegie Hall. I think it was 90. It was the same weekend that Joe was playing the first time playing his a solo with the orchestra. He was doing a Creston. And there was a write-up in the uh, New Yorker a week later about how weird is this? Two trombone concertos in one weekend. <laughs> that's crazy. It was crazy. That that's that's beautiful to hear, though. I mean, every now and then, if if you're blessed enough to have a moment in your life where just everything works out the way you wanted it to, right. yeah, and it's so weird that it does because you've never almost entertained that never. <laughs> that it's almost like, wait, what? wait, it all, it all worked out the way it should. And it feels great. And I feel wonderful. And it's okay to feel this way. Like there's nothing better. Right. I drank a lot that night as you should not enough to really get super drunk or anything, but I hadn't had any water. And so Uh I got this the next day, my mom lives still lived out in uh, Lockport and we invited a lot of people over because we had a pool and stuff to hang out and swim. And I just got this rash and was miserable because I was dehydrated <laughs> and drank. And I'm like, okay, well, I had this amazing experience and now. Balanced back out. Yep. <laughs> so so it sounds like that really spurred your curiosity in psychology. And I think that's something that a lot of people may not know about you. And it's super interesting is that you went on to get your master of arts in counseling psychology at Western Michigan in 1998. And of course, as anyone that has taught, you know, you feel like you're a part-time, you know, psychiatrist as a professor, but you actually are one. (laughs) 
Well, I don't know about that, but that came from my knowing something wasn't right, you know, and I read that guy's book and I wanted to go. I wasn't in a crisis at the time. I had gone, you know, I'd gotten divorced years before that. And so I went through marriage counseling and then I did some therapy with somebody and I thought, man, I am really messed up. And I had no idea I was, you know, it was just sort of like, oh, I'm screwed up, you know, and, and I was in a great, good place at the time. And I just read this guy's book and went and met him and, You'll you'll appreciate that. I'm sitting in front of this guy first time. Well, I'm sitting in his um, waiting room, and he walks out. He stops right in front of me. He's a short guy, but had a lot of power. And he just stood right in front of me, looked at me, goes, "I I stood up and said, Doctor Barlovov, nice to meet you." He said, "How did you know who I was?" And I said, "Your picture's on the back of your book." He goes, "Oh, sit down." <laughs> he looks, goes, and I sit down and go like, "Okay, that was weird." And then I go in and he asks me, you know, why are you here? And I said, oh, you know, I just think there's more in life that I'm experiencing. Things aren't, you know, things are pretty good, but I just, I read your book and I think that there are things that I need to work on. And he said, I think you just want to be more of a girl. And I looked at him and said, what? (laughs) I said, what? I am a girl, blah, blah, blah. But you know, I was pretty androgynous. And and so this whole thing that I've been talking about my pathology from being a little girl and feeling like I couldn't do anything. And I had to play the trombone and all this stuff to sort of prove myself. This guy says that to me. And, and I had a tattoo and he says, Oh, and you have a tattoo. And I said, yeah, do you like it? He says, no, I don't like it. (laughs) And I said, "Uh, okay, you know. And he said, why did you get it? And I said, well, you know, I just, I don't know why I got it. I just think it looks sort of cool. And he said, yeah, you just want to look. I mean, he just said all these things really directly to me. And I'm like, who the heck is this guy? And it began my five years with him. Unfortunately, he was murdered by one of the patients. Oh my gosh! Whoa. Yeah, there's a big thing. It it was it was a horrible horrible time. What what's so it, this, what's this guy's name again? I'm sorry to ask, but Doctor Ruven Barlovov, B A R L E V A V. Why did you after that initial encounter? And this sounds like an exact like never meet your heroes situation. But why did you want to keep studying with him after he kind of talked to you that way? Well, do you remember Doctor Ravelli? Mm-hmm. Oh, you like the tough guy. I wanted to, uh, you know, maybe I wanted to like me that part of my stuff, but I wanted to sort of wanted to prove to him or I, I, I'm not sure that was it exactly. I, there was something about him that I was attracted to. And I thought maybe this guy really can help me. However, some of the things he did were he made me wear a dress to all to my sessions And I cried and I was insulted by him. You don't like me because I don't have a dress on, you know, that stuff. But uh, it was the hardest thing I ever did. I just felt all the time like I was just being raked over the coals, but they were feelings. And there were certain times when he would say to me, I'd say, I feel this, I feel this, I feel this. And he'd look at me and say, take your feelings and stick them up your ass. Whoa. It's not reality. 
what does your head say? What do your thoughts say? And the way he did therapy, it was a, a certain model that I embraced, ultimately embraced. And this whole idea that there are two relationships in therapy with a therapist like there are with a professor and a student. And in order to do surgery, which is what he called pushing those buttons to challenge how you operate. Is this really how you want to operate? Is this authentic or is this brought on by some pathology or some history, something historical? And it took me a while until I, I did embrace it. And then I just would go in there and say, okay, I'm ready. Filet me, go for it. And then he'd say, oh, you don't need that. You're doing fine. I'm like, oh no, come on, cut into me, do surgery and stuff. It was, it was a huge transformative time. And it was during that time that this guy, Chuck, Chuck Kelly, who did this body work and science and life force course, was also working with him because Barlovov would work with the, the thinking stuff and he would work with the emotional stuff. Because some of the people that were getting really healthy in their head, you could tell were holding emotions in their body. Mm. So this you know, I didn't have any history in psychology. I never took a class in my life. And then it was, I was so, I wanted to know more. It really drew me in. Yeah. And my, again, my whole paradigm about, you know, destiny and all that stuff changed. I thought that I was predisposed to be a certain way. And that was bull. I could really be in charge of, moving forward in my life and what I want to do with my life. So, so he gave you the tools to kind of take more control of what you may have felt and perceived about yourself in a way, if, if you had to boil it down. Yeah. I'm not sure he gave me the tools, but I mean, what he did is again, this is how I was. It just, I was so fascinated that I had to know more. I had to jump in more. So many times I drove from Detroit back to Grand Rapids because I was driving to Western for the psych degree. And the reason I did that is I wanted to be in his training program. He said I had to have at least Whoa. a master's degree in a related field. <clears throat> so I'm playing in the orchestra, driving down there, driving to Detroit two to three times a week, driving to Western a couple times a week. And then I ended up playing in their quintet for a couple years at Western. And I don't know how many miles I put on the car. Those Jeez. three years. That's a Chasing long distance for those who don't know Michigan geography. I mean, it's not like like insane, but to do it like on a regular basis <clears throat> to make that triangle was a lot, you know. It was a lot. But again, I can do anything. Oh, I can do it. <laughs> yep. I swear I like there's something about it that block that like totally made me get stuck on the fact that he'd make you wear a dress. First it was shoes with heels. And I went out and bought them. And then it was a dress. And th this is in a group. I mean, I had individual therapy with him, but in a group with people, nine other people from all walks of life. And, you know, I fought him. I did all this stuff, the stuff that I couldn't do when I was a child. You know, you couldn't touch anybody, but you could say anything. And some of the exercises I do, like I'd stand up and push my hands against his hands and just say F you as loud as I could in his face until I started to sob. It was like something Whoa. dislodged, you know? 
So it's a very vi- like a visceral <clears throat> form of psychiatry. Mm. And so you let your students do that to you. Well, to a degree. <laughs> <laughs> no, sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. You ever you ever have a student? I mean, I'm I'm, I'm guessing I know the answer. We ever have a student just out of the blue just say "f you." I don't think so. Maybe not out of the blue. That might be a little because it's does or that, just does that like, happen to you a lot, Nick. Well, I'm sure they say it behind my back. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, have I ever had students? I don't know. Um, I've had them yell at me for sure. I'm okay. sure you've had students yell at you at the very least, Ava. And sometimes I've encouraged them to. All right, let's go more. Right? Get yeah, we more. have a block. We have a block here. Let's do it and get on, get on with it. You know. But so. I would explain that this was an exercise that I did that helped me a lot. And that that does help people if you're not just doing some weird thing that they're like freaked out about. This is what my therapist did with me, and it really helped me get beyond this resistance that you have right now mm-hmm. or that okay. I have. I mean, before we go down, the, I mean, this could be a whole yeah, we, podcast in and of itself, but one last thought on that is uh, – Sorry, my dog's barking. <laughs> Kiki, quiet. Um, He's and, trying to express his puppy? feelings. Where's that puppy in here? Oh, oh, boy. Oh, oh, boy. Oh, boy. Sorry. That little dog with the big bark. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, he doesn't think he's little. The The only thing I could think of, and I'm sh- I'm not sure, but I'm, I feel confident that you might agree with me on this, Ava, and you, Sebastian, as well, is that, you could go down that road and like feel this tension between yourself and, and a student or vice versa. And really like, let's say, let's say us in teacher position say, all right, let's air it out. Let's do this. Come on. And that's, that could, I could see a situation where that student is just not in the, either the emotional maturity, uh, the, the psychological maturity to be able to do that. And it could further deteriorate things. But I think that it's in some cases, it's like, I feel like I've gotten to the point with certain students where I'm just like, we have nothing to lose. Let, let's try this out, you know, because <laughs> we're, we're at a block here. we have like a wall between us. I've had that issue with a few students over the years and it's not fun. Of course. And I would say of those students, most of them didn't get it. Most of them still held resentment or things afterwards. And I, I would talk about it with colleagues or even once I went to see a therapist, former therapist said, I got to just talk this out because if you're a therapist, there's, you, you do what they call supervision on Mm -hmm. a pretty regular basis. And especially if you're not a doctor and you're licensed, you have to do it once a month or something like that. I'm I'm friends with, quite a few actually so so you know what i'm talking about yeah and just uh because your response or my response there's always a little bit of transference you know that Mm. who treated me like that or who, who treated him or her like that that we're having this stuff going on it's not just about me because i certainly didn't do anything to create this hostility or this resistance, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so I'll try to sort of figure that out. And and most students are receptive to trying to figure things out. Not everybody, you mm-hmm. know, 
It's it's really interesting. And as all our listeners know, I'm a professional psychologist. So everything I say is fact on these kind of matters. But I've definitely noticed it's always those people and it's related to the people pleasing, the people that tend to be some of the nicest people you've ever known that are just always over the top nice and will do anything for you are the ones that I find are most prone to having explosions of anger because they will be bottling stuff up so much and not allowing themselves to just have a free flow of expressing their emotions. You got that right. And I think early on, I was that person. Everybody thought I was so even killed. I want everybody to like me. And then a couple times a year, I would just like explode. And it was usually in a safe place, but I would just let it rip and then everything would come pouring out. And so maybe now after you said that, you can understand why this psychiatrist worked the way he did with me so that I lived more normal, like a a normal person, you know, in reality. He used to always say reality rules. It's up on my wall. Look up there. Reality rules. Wow. And yeah, I miss him. Every day I am grateful for the fact that I did that for nine years. Wow. Were you a were were you an active uh patient of his when he was murdered? Jeez, oh peace. I can't remember. I was supposed to be there that day, actually. Oh, oh my goodness. gosh. There were a lot of stories about him because his his therapy was not unconventional, it was very unconventional. And most of the people in it benefited so much. We get sort of I, I mean, I was hooked on it for sure. There are people that said it was cult-like and stuff, and there were people that we're in the offices upstairs because this was in Southfield, Michigan. Yeah. Was, yeah. I don't know what's going on down there. I hear, I hear everybody saying F you, F you and stuff. It's like well, all this stuff. It really is. At, at least as far as I'm concerned, it's who I am. And it's, it all affected my trombone playing my music, leaving and then coming back. Cause I was ready to, I was playing, I think the best in my life at that point, we just recorded the herb concerto the Grand Rapids Symphony, Richard Stoltzman did the clarinet one, and Miriam Freed did the violin one. I was honored to be in the same CD with those guys. And you mentioned Lynn Harrell before. I mean, he's a legend too. Yeah. All right, back to Ava Ordman, <laughs> who is the person already? I want to talk about. All right, so started at Michigan State in 2002, and I'm not I'm not a mathematician, so that's that's at least five years that you taught there. <laughs> <laughs> this was my 21st year, but I've been told it's my 22nd. So that's incredible. And am I, is it public knowledge that is this going to be your last year? Am, are we allowed to say that? Yeah. How, how do we feel looking back at that? Hmm. It's been a great ride. I've, uh, when I first got the job, I was working at the, the guidance center in Southgate, Michigan. And I heard it was open, but I was pretty much committed. I was teaching at Trombone at Oakland University, playing extra with Detroit and the opera there and things like that. But I was I was working 60, 70 hours a week. I was always in the car. And there's in that area, there's traffic. Yep. So Phil Cinder called me the last week. And he just said to me, he said, I know you've been doing other things in your life and you might not even be interested. I just wanted you to know about this. And I just always thought you'd be a great colleague. 
That's all he said to me. And I said, I said, well, thanks. I'll think about it. And then I went, what the heck? And I just threw a record, a bunch of recordings together. Cause in those days it was obviously different. You had to have CDs and you had to send all this stuff. Now you just put it all on the computer and I sent all my stuff in. And a few weeks later, I got a call as one of eight finalists. And I was like, shit, I got to get a recital together if I make it that far. So, you know, I was teaching, I was working at the clinic 50 hours a week and then doing all this extra work. So I started working on a recital just in case. Cause I, to me, nothing's lost to the universe. That's another thing Barlabov used to always say, nothing's lost to the universe. You put the energy into it. Even if you don't get it, you've done, you've moved in that direction. And I, and I sort of live by that. And I try to help my students with that as well. But then I was down to three of us and I went in and did my thing and didn't hear for a while. And then the Dean calls me and I know Jim Forger, he and I went to school together. He, I think he was a senior when I was a freshman saxophone player. And so I've known him most of my life and we've talked other times before I even got the gig there. And he called while I was working at the clinic and I said, Oh, is this my, uh, thank you very much. It was nice to have you come play for us. He says, actually, I'd like to hire you. And I was like, what? And I was very excited because I hadn't even, I started to try to think about what it would be like ha having left Grand Rapids, come over here, bought a house, settled in a new area and doing a new thing. And I had just got moved in the position of, uh, what was that? What do they call me? Well, I was head of the program, the adolescent substance abuse program. I moved into that spot wow. starting from wow. part-time. It still didn't pay a lot, but I was moved into a more of a administrative. Well, I was still doing therapy, but I was in a higher position. So I started, you know, the process of getting over there and stuff. And when I went to meet with the Dean, you know, you can come in as an assistant professor or an associate professor and, this is what this pays. This is what this could pay. If you come in as assistant professor, you have seven years to learn the field, come in as a associate, it'd be three years or something like that. And I looked at him, I said, you know, I'll know in three years if this is where I want to be. And I think you'll know if you want me. So let's just go with that. And that's what we did. And it was very short, just a few months where I was, I knew that's where I wanted to be. It was surprising to me. And the studio at that time, eh, they hadn't had a full-time teacher there for a couple of years. And so it definitely needed to be sort of looked at and overhauled. And I helped a few students out who shouldn't be in there. And then the other ones hustled because they wanted to stay in the studio. And some of them have been very successful. What so, advice would you give to someone on how, how you built your studio? How to build a studio? Yeah, how you went about building the identity of your program and the strength of your students. One thing is I'm a straight shooter and I wouldn't have been before Dr. Barlowov, but I'm beyond people all liking me. It's about being honest and authentic with them. And I think once my students knew that I cared about them, and that's a, that's another weird thing my students get it now, but it was something that I sort of learned as a therapist. In order to be a really good therapist, you have to love your patients. 
And I believe in order to be a really good teacher, I have to love my students, even the ones that might not be that easy to love. But it's a it's a different way to approach a relationship. And several of these students who left and did other things, when they heard I'm retiring, they want to come to the retirement concert. They're all excited about coming. And 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 I always worry about, you know, those that went this way or that way. And building a studio, the hardest thing is money nowadays because everybody wants money. Mm-hmm. And I always kept trying to sort of, well, if I don't give this person that much, I can give this person a little bit. And I got to the point where to really get your best studio and your best students, you have to go for the best students. And the ones that really want to come will come. And I always do try to correct if somebody comes and works their tail off and they're on a very small scholarship or not any, I I do try to find ways to reward them. And my students know me as not being very complimentary. <laughs> Because I always focus on what we need to fix. Right, right. And I tell them that. And so, like, we'll be in studio class and somebody will do something who very seldom gets a pat on the back from Ordman. And I'll say, all right, listen up, guys. A compliment is coming. And they're like, oh, my God, you know. And (laughs) it's just like, oops. It's like by just sort of setting up that climate of I care about you no matter what. And I've got a couple right now that are struggling and some of the that, hard, hard, the kids that don't want to do that won't do anything. I ask them to do. I said, you know, do you want to study with the TA? No, I want to study with you. I said, no, you don't. <laughs> mm. You don't do anything I ask you to do or at least try, you know? And I mean, what you said was really interesting about loving your students that's not easy because that really sets you up for, you know, disappointment if it doesn't work out. Like, how do you allow yourself to be that vulnerable? It's happened too, where I have felt betrayed. Because when you love someone, you open your heart. And, and, and you also say things that need to be said. If you're really honest and I would say that the majority of my my students have welcomed that, even the painful stuff. Not me so much, but knowing that it had to be things would need to be said and need to be done. The ones that can't get there, I still feel compassion for them because I know maybe know a bit of their struggles or that they are struggling. I've tried to get, I, you can't tell people to go into therapy, but I always talk about how it's one of the best things I ever did for myself. And I have many students that have sought therapy and it's helped them uh, because I can't be the therapist. And they may, we may have a few moments where we go in that direction. And I say, you know, I'm your trombone professor and I care about you and I want you to be healthier and happier and all these things. But it won't work because I can't I'm not I can't be your therapist, you know, and they know that. And it, it's better because you have to figure out how boundaries are. You have to figure out boundaries no matter what. And that's why I all my students call me Professor Ordman, not Ava. Mm. When I first got the gig, it was sort of like. 
you know, I just wanted to be Ava. <laughs> but my therapist, it was always Dr. Barlabov. We couldn't call it mm. Ruven, although toward the end I did at some points. But it set up some kind of distinction that makes it a little bit easier when you are when you have to do the hard stuff. And it sounds like your way of showing love might not be like the most obvious to a student when it's when you're coming down like so direct with them. But in fact, that is your way of showing love because that's like the fastest way to effectiveness, I imagine. You know, when I first started changing from the people pleaser to trying to be more authentic and honest and all that stuff, I was clumsy with it. And I'd have to like force the words out and they might even have sounded harsh. And I remember when that was happening that I'd say to the students, I'm having trouble doing this. I'm not, I haven't lived this way before. Wanting to tell you what you, what you have to hear as opposed to what you want to hear. And the only way reason I can do that to you is because it was done to me and it helped me so much. And so if I, I start from that posture, which is reality. And again, most come around, not all, but most do. And I hope, I hope for them that they can continue in their own lives in a similar kind of way. It doesn't have to be exactly the same way, but just know that not everyone's going to love you and not everyone's going to like you, but be honest with people. You, you mentioned that, you know, reality is the most important thing, right? Well, let's be honest, especially when it comes to such a critical world, like the music world, where we're taking auditions, where it's, you know, uh, or it, not just let's leave auditions out, not out of it, but only part of the equation. Auditions, there's uh, as simple as a lesson. There could be a concert, a review in a paper over, you know, a big recital you put on. If you if you become a professional, look, we live amongst criticism and we live amongst failure. Like reality doesn't have to be nice, you know. And the 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 sooner you can accept that it's kind of in line with you saying, look, not everyone's going to like you. And it's like some, that's why it's hard to say it sometimes too. Just because it's reality doesn't mean it's easy to say or easy to hear, especially if you're not used to doing that. Right. Well, that's what my therapist did to me on many, you know, even wearing the dress, that kind of stuff, just, I could have quit at any moment. I could have walked out the door, but there was something, I think it was because I knew he loved me. Wow. That's so, that's that's amazing. How much that, I mean, uh, it's obvious how much it has. It it opened up a whole new chapter in your life. I don't want to say it changed. Well, it did change the course of your life. What am I, who am I kidding? I mean, you you went back to school and you, and you started a whole new career and then you started another career as a professor. Uh, So this, this really did affect every corner of your life, especially the musical portion of your life especially with you, Ava, that you've, it's so clear that it's such an integral part of not only your, your teaching, but your core, you know, the core of who you are. Well, you know, how it can be bridged, I think, to how I sort of simplify where I'm at now and what's to come is I do believe now that the most important thing in life is relationships with people. And it's not something I 
knew or thought about early on. It's just do the job. This is my friend. That's not my friend. I'm going to hang out, get a party, and go home, sleep, get up, and do everything good. It's just like, who? How can I connect with another human being? The shared human experience is, even when it's painful and loss, we talked a little earlier about Irv Wagner. And I mean, when I heard that this morning, and, and we didn't. I never, I didn't see him that much. I didn't do that much with him. I saw him a few times, but was always such loving exchange with this man. And last Friday, I sent a message to a couple of younger professors and just asked them if they had this one piece by Alan Chase. It was written, I don't know, the 60s or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I talked to Natalie Manish. She said, I don't even know the piece. I said, oh, it's a good piece, a good piece. So I thought, okay, who are the who are that generation might know this, you know? And so Irv, I think it was Irv, Larry Zalkin, John Whitaker, and Tony Baker. Those are the four people I just sent an email to. Do you guys, I know this music is in a pile somewhere in my office. I've done it before, but I can't find it. I want to send it out. Tony sends me the parts right away. And he didn't have the score. And Irv says, uh, let me check. I'll check for you on Monday. And John did too. They both did. So I looked for my piles again, couldn't find it. I said, I'd really appreciate it if somebody has a score. He said, this was Monday, this week. Mm. Bert said, I'm still looking for it, Ava. Oh, oh, wow. And you know, he was not in a great place. Yeah. He, you know, he was, he's been not well for a little bit here. Well, and I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I, I, the only reason I knew it is uh, someone, one of his old students on Facebook shared a story. It was like a local story in Oklahoma talking about, you know, this professor at the university and that, you know, that he's sick, but he's still like playing the trombone and like still teaching and all this stuff. And he, his students just lost their professor. He was teaching. I know. I know. Yeah, man. Just, it's just such a. A very sad day. And mm-hmm. the, the number one thing about Irv is he was a kind man, a gentleman through and through. And every time I met him, I just felt like we'd embrace and hug each other, you know? Mm. Even though we weren't close and didn't have a regular relationship, again, it's that those relationships and how they feel. I mean, I just felt immense loss today mm. after just... This exchange on Facebook on right. Monday, and then he's gone. Sure. You know, Ugh. well, raise gonna, a glass tonight, right? Yeah, exactly. We We're gonna have a drink, we drink it. for Irv tonight. So I think we should move to the rapid fire section. So Ava, Uh-oh. we have a, <laughs> we, we we always close with just a few short questions, short questions, short answer, first thing that comes to your head, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And again, thanks so much for hanging out with us. It's it's been really, really awesome talking to you. And, and it's just incredible the the career you've had and you, you have to be so proud looking back at your, at your tenure at, at Michigan state and the, the students that, that adore you, that many have come to the trombone retreat. So first one, we always start with what advice would you give to your 18 year old self? Hmm. Well, after everything I told you already, it would be to, to reassure myself that I'm okay, that I'm good enough, that I don't have to prove everything, that I don't have to run through life. I can 
I can enjoy things more. And even though it's an 18 year old, you got to work really hard to get where you want to go. There was a part of me that it was too overt, you know, I didn't take the time. I mean, I'm not married and I was married once, but those kinds of things, it's like, why, you know, why did all those things? So slow down, don't run through life. Beautiful. Favorite Michigan beer? Hardest question you've asked yet, Sebastian. It's like, oh it's like who's your favorite God. child. All right. Well, I am a big fan of Ellison's Brewery. Mm. Ellison's. And what the heck is the name of that beer? They have such strange names. Oh, it's a hazy double dry hop IPA. It's got a little citrus in it. It's not called a New England oh, yeah. style. I would say Ellison's, I love their beer. See, you guys, you guys are spoiled up there with the amount of breweries you have, but it makes sense because how else are you going to get through those winters? <laughs> you or know those what? summers or falls or springs? You know, <laughs> the reality is, I think you probably know this, Nick. It's not as cold as it used to be here. We don't have as many blizzards or big storms. We have a couple a year, but I think I had to blow my driveway out only three times last year. So, Ava, like many of our guests, you're doing absolutely terribly in the rapid fire. Section. Oh, sorry. But <laughs> yeah, well, it's okay. only terrible in the rapid section of it. That's all. It, the the answers are wonderful. Bam, we're done. <laughs> the answers are wonderful. Best advice you've ever received? Stick your feelings up your ass. <laughs> <laughs> There's a billboard that the entire world can see. And you can write anything you want on it. What are you going to write on it? It, it would be something like, you know, wake up or because um, I am really worried about our world. And I don't want to get into that, but I'm really worried about it. And hmm. so it might be something like wake up or slow down. Something like that. Okay. Do you have any regrets? <sighs> God, I've thought about this because I could say I, I don't really have any regrets, even though there are things I've done that I you know, wish I hadn't done. I think, I think the biggest regret I have is that I, it seems like I waited too long to figure out how I operated, you know? I just stayed in that rut for, it got me a lot of things in life, for sure. But I just, somebody said to me, well, what do you do after you play Carnegie Hall? And I said, oh, that's just the beginning, you know, like that you've got, when I, cause I did that herb there and it's like, I kept, I kept thinking like, well, what's the next thing I do? What's the next thing I do? And that really is not a way to live. So I wish early on that I could have just. Stop to smell the roses a little bit. Yeah, I guess that's. I know that's I mean, a, to be cliche. To be cliche, cliche, but it's it's really just a yeah. From from my perspective, I see you as someone that's like so brave and was actively seeking something out that didn't, and you didn't have to because there's so many people that live their whole lives without ever trying to understand how how they are and unlock themselves. So I think you're incredible, oh, honestly, you're hearing, hearing your story. It's a t it's a tough question. Before Nick asks his last question, which I'm very excited to hear your answer, <laughs> I can um, answer is it. there a, 
Is there, I'm sure you can. Um, is there anything that we haven't touched on that you'd like to say in closing? Well, I, I'd like to thank you gentlemen for starting this wonderful retreat that you have on Lake Michigan Mm -hmm. because I have seen so many young people grow from just a week with that kind of just sort of laid back, but intense experience. And yes, I've had several students there because of how close we are and all that, but I've never heard anything negative about their time there. And it's wonderful that there's a place where people can go and get great tutelage and great butt kicking and leave feeling again, the love, the love of, of trombone and music and people and, and a beautiful setting. And you guys definitely put a ton into it. And to have this, these podcasts be a part of that. It's, uh, you do, you're doing great work for the trombone world and just for people. Well, thank you. That's very nice. Thank you. Uh, it's, uh, it's definitely a labor of love and it has paid off tenfold and we appreciate you, uh, exposing your students to us being around, you know, no, they love it. They love it. You know, they keep coming back. (laughs) Oh, I know. We can't, we can't shake them away. My question is, um, what do you think students need to do, need to do more of that they aren't doing enough of? Okay. I'll try not to say, be too heavy winded about this, but it's something I think about a lot. Um, I know we have to be drill sergeants as teachers and as students. Any, we all do. We have to have a regiment. We have to constantly be doing everything we can to, like an athlete, learn how to play the instrument, the physicality of it, how to, how everything, just becoming consistent and rock solid. But I truly believe there are a lot of players out there today that that's where they end. Mm-hmm. They would be, and, and there, there's some great players. I would call them like trombone athletes or trombone jocks. And a lot of them have jobs and they can wow you with their playing. But I have, in a lot of the younger generation, I don't hear a lot of artistry in performance. Um, and I have a really great student right now who has really mastered how to play the instrument and and he's going to be with me this year. And I think, I don't know if he'll stay or not, but he really knows how to play the horn. But I said, why don't we this year try to find your, your voice, hmm. find your, your music. Because I do think at an audition, if you got the other stuff down and you also have this, that's what a committee a good committee will look for. There've been right, a lot the full package, there've been problems yeah. with committees for sure. Trust me, you know that too. They don't play like me. I don't want them. They don't this, this, but to some, to just learn how to, to be, uh, to find your voice and be an artist and sing on the instrument. You know, it's, I think I started from that place and then just drilled the crap out of myself because I wanted to play better. But, if you can get into that zone, you're going to love playing the horn a whole lot more. So find your voice and seek artistry as opposed to just seeking 
the athletic part of playing the horn. Ava Ordman, thank you so much. That was wonderful. <laughs> I, I got to know you even better, which I've always wanted to do. Please come visit us more at the retreat. I think this year we have to spend some time drinking beer and really talking. I Sounds really good like to me. That. And I heard a hot tub mentioned. I'm always a fan of those. Ah. So. I've been thinking about getting one. Should I buy one? I feel like I think you should just turn your living room into a giant hot tub. Whoa. I'll tell you, as with what I'm dealing with now with this paint and stuff, I'm like, maybe I should a walk in tub, they're so ugly. But wouldn't it be great to go into my bathroom? It's you know, in a ninety one year old house I've got this really cool bathroom. <laughs> Put a walk in tub in there. <laughs> But or get one of these two thousand dollar, three thousand dollar massage chairs. I tried one the other day. That oh my god! Really it was yeah. awesome. Really? So you never know. <laughs> Hot tub and a massage chair. <laughs> oh my gosh! Tub and massage. That's all you need. And a little <laughs> can of some good beer. It sounds, can of some good beer sounds delightful. It does. Awesome. Yeah. Well, you take care, and you. I hope you you feel better. Thank you. Sending you healing vibes. We're working on it. And, and I, yeah. I hope you guys have a great fall season wherever you are. Thank you. I do appreciate it. And uh, I'll see you in the summer, if not before. Yeah. Yes. Take care, opening. Ava. You know, there's a job opening at Michigan State. Just, Wait, which one? Throw that out. <laughs> there's gonna be there's gonna be a lot of people going for yeah. that. Guaranteed. I might know if you be very very lucky. You're gonna have to do that president thing where you write a letter and like leave it on the desk <laughs> right. when a person comes. I would uh, do that. I would do that. <laughs> I, and all the letter says is fuck your feelings. <laughs> Stick them off, you know. <laughs> well, Sebastian, I think uh, Ava Ordman might be a cat because she's led very many lives. Whoa. I see what you did there. That's like an analogy for, for cats living nine lives. But she didn't evade death. But wow, what a profile for for a teacher with, with you know, we always feel like we're part-time armchair psychologist with this job sometimes. But she actually did the work and really studied. She is a psychologist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I would say that she's a professional basketball player with good fundamentals who has stopped dribbling because she pivoted. You're just you're just hammering with these metaphors this morning. We we got to record it this hour every every time. <laughs> yeah, we're hitting the sweet spot today. Uh, no, I mean, look, I, like I said in the interview, I've always been interested by psychology, philosophy, but in this, I mean, that doesn't necessarily apply to this specific interview. But the fact that she is a psychologist and had this profound relationship with. A very what seems kind of controversial yeah. psychotherapist. I, I don't intense. know if that's yeah. Yeah, I want to read more about him. I want to read one of his books. I looked up he has a couple of books out there. I'm not exactly sure which one Ava read that kind of opened her uh, mind to him to, to make her seek him out and go down the road of uh, psychology herself. But you know, obviously, as you just heard, we definitely go down that road for a little while talking about it. But you know. It, it's so related to what we do, especially when you start teaching. Psychology is so important when it comes to practicing and, and teaching and performing and all this stuff. There's It's so intermingled with what we do. So I don't think it was too much of a pit. I mean, 
99% of my advice is just rub some dirt on it. Stuff stuff your sorries in a sack. That That's all you need to really say, right? <laughs> I, I so want to say stuff your sorries in a sack to a... To a to stuff a your sorries in a sack. I think the generation now has probably never even heard that. Like, how, how, how would one go about that? Uh, all right. <laughs> Getting back on topic. My whole, my whole goal is to derail every serious thing you say today. That's okay. You can do that. One thing that stuck to me is she is uh, a force, a pers- personal force and a playing force. She's a very, uh, you play your personality. I truly believe that. And she definitely does. And I mean, that as a compliment. I hope that comes across that way. But yeah, just a very fascinating person to be around. Direct, very yeah, direct, direct drive human being, and just very fascinating to talk to. And I think that comes across in this interview very well. Sometimes direct people can can throw people off if you're, but once you like understand that's how that person communicates, it actually can be wonderful. And you, once you realize it's not personal and they're not trying to offend you. And you get over yourself, you're just like, oh, wow, we can make like a lot of progress quickly. Yeah. And, and you know, at the end of the day with, with her in particular, she, she's uh very sweet, very, I, th- I find her to be a very warm person. So that definitely, <laughs> that definitely adds to her whole picture is that she, while being very direct, she's very warm. Person. We actually, when you had to run right after the interview and we talked for, we talked, we all talked for a while, but like her and I hung out for like a little while afterwards too. And she was just giving me really great advice talking about teaching and and being a professor and relationships with students. And it's just, I'm a fan. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see who kind of takes over big job, the reins. Big job. Yeah. It's a big job. Um, It's a big school of music. Yeah. So I'm very curious about what happens there. Also also wish her the best of luck in her retirement. And it sounds like she's not going to be bored. (laughs) Yeah. She's a person of many interests. I want to talk about something. Oh, yeah? Something hit me going on in my life. Uh-oh. Um, some people might have seen me share on Instagram or Facebook uh, that my orchestra, New York City Ballet Orchestra, is going through very difficult ne- negotiations right now. And we're not alone in that. I mean, Philadelphia, San Francisco, uh, looks like some other big orchestras coming up are going to be facing some very difficult times. And so last night, just for reference, for those listening, it was uh, September 19th. Was that last night? September 19th. um, We had our opening night and it's kind of twofold. The opening night's always a big deal, no matter where you play, but this is the 75th anniversary of the company. So they had this whole thing planned where after we finished the program, we played, in my opinion, kind of a stupid choice of music. We played pomp and circumstance in all living alumni of, of the company came. Oh, that's super cool. So, I mean, you know, some were recent and I remember them. I remember performing while they were in the company dancing and some were, I mean, octogenarians and, you know, had to come out there and walkers. And, you know, I, I was just thinking, you know, when I had a chance to look up a stage cause pomp and circumstance is pretty busy part, but, um, these people now, you know, of course, when you get old, you lose your motor skills to various degrees. And these people who were really elite athletes and artists now with walkers or in wheelchairs and, you know, none of us are, that was the first thing that came across my mind in that moment was none of us, uh, 
are built to last forever. So enjoy today, but <laughs> it was a cool event, but it, unfortunately our management is just being so draconian really? in their approach with, with negotiations. And we're still so far, we're still so far below our actual wages of 2019. And then you couple in record inflation in our buying power is just, I mean, we're hurting, mm. you know? And so we had a rally before the the performance, and I would bet there was probably 200 people there, awesome. or more, probably more, to um, support us and with handing out leaflets with information on why we're we, – I've gotten a lot of messages from some of you and from my friends and colleagues around the country and world about if we're stri on strike right now, and – I'll clarify by saying this. We took what's called a strike authorization vote. So if you don't play in a union orchestra and aren't a member of a CBA, the collective bargaining uh, agreement, that's the contract. You can't just go on strike. You have to take a vote from the membership to authorize. And then that is basically a bargaining tool that now our negotiation committee mm -hmm. has saying, hey, if you don't start playing nice, we, we can go on. Yeah, it's strike. like a step. Yeah. So we're not on strike. We've authorized the ability to go on strike. And so it's good that we're not on strike, but um, it, it I just wish it weren't this way. And the reason I bring this up, obviously, is something going on in my life, and it's stressful. It's, it, I, my friends and colleagues are really hurting and scared. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's our livelihood. It's, it's very difficult. And um, but at the same time, it makes you really angry because, you know, other people probably don't know this. The New York City Ballet is the most financially secure organization in Lincoln Center. Well, performing organization. Yeah, Julie that's Harrison's what I always thought. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the ballet just, people love the ballet and mm -hmm. show it in donations. And one thing that management is refusing to do, which is actually... Um, uh, unlawful when it comes to uh, negotiations. There's there's sets of rules of like, just like, <laughs> I mean, it's ironic, but it's actually true. Uh, there's rules of war, mm -hmm. right? There's rules of negotiation. Rules of engagement. There's, there's, yes, there's there's decorum. And if you break that, there's actually, it, it it's, these have been spelled out at the at the highest level in this country, at the government level. Of how you have to uh, engage in negotiation in a fair way. So when we say that, whenever you read about a ne negotiations not being in good faith or being not fair, it's not just a feeling. It's actually like a legal, like they are not negotiating in good faith. That's a legalese term. That's not just like, oh, I feel they're doing this wrong. That means at some point they broke the protocol and they're actually acting in illegal ways. Mm. The ramifications for that depends on the situation, how egregious it is, and how an arbitrator would punish the party that is stepping out of line. Mm. But this is happening to us. They are being unlawful and negotiating, like I said earlier, in draconian fashion, which is not how you are supposed to negotiate between management and a labor union. And what makes it so frustrating is it's so obvious that this is just an anti-labor, anti-union movement from our management that they want to pay us less 
just because they want to pay us less. And mm. I say this because our listeners, most of most of you are aspiring musicians and or working if musicians. You get a job or work musicians, right? And unfortunately, you'll probably be in a situation sometime in your life where this happens to you in an organization you're in, be it an educational institution where it's unionized or in a performing institution. And it's really nasty. And it's just, um, it really sucks to have to constantly try to validate why you deserve Mm -hmm. to live a comfortable life. We're not asking to be made rich. No one goes into music to become rich. Not not classical music, anyway. <laughs> um, and I just don't think I don't think it's unfair to ask to be paid what we were making in 2019, which is actually less than what we less than what we made if we make dollar to dollar the same because the dollar is not worth what it was in 2019. Right. Yeah. It's worth far less. So that's what's just sitting heavy on me, unfortunately. I'm sorry, and, man. Um, yeah, we did a couple things. You know, we we did that rally, and then oddly enough, in you know, all's fair in love and war, love and war. And we found out that in our contract, there's actually not anything about our uniform about what we have to wear on the oh, job. No. And so, you can change what you wear for performances by a vote of the orchestra. So we had, we had shirts made up on the back said, pay the orchestra in big, bold letters. And we changed our uniform to wear those in performance, which did not make our management happy. But you know, you know what, like at some point, if they're going to, if they're going to act nasty at some point, you have to stop being nice, you know, to get what's, what's what you deserve. You you can get really weird with that too. (laughs) With the with the dress well, code, if you really- I know, and I I told our orchestra committee I feel like we're not going far enough because they were black with white lettering, so it's close enough to pit black. Yeah. I'm like, man, why aren't we wearing like construction worker vests yeah. and just that that have big writing on it and just getting way out there? And we've there's lots of things I don't want to disclose too much yeah, yeah. about what we're thinking about doing sure. next, but we have some things that are getting progressively and progressively. Uh, more, I don't know, disruptive, I suppose. Well, well if, and, if I may ask, like you mentioned, and of course don't share anything that you can or shouldn't share, but like you said the, the ballet violated something um, draconian. Like what specifically was that? The, mo- the most recent one was they, they, the, an offer they had on the table, they, they moved around numbers in a certain way that actually a new offer came in that actually made it a worse offer than before. And you can't do that in negotiations. You can't like, if things are going poorly to say, say, well, I can make it worse for you right now, mm. worse than it already is. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. that's essentially what they're doing. So that's being grieved by the orchestra with the um, national labor, labor relations board. And there's some other things too, that I don't have enough exact details yeah. on. I can't, so I can't, I don't want to speak. But to basically it. it's, um, I mean, cause you guys took a big cut during the pandemic. We took a 15% pay. Well, we went, we went 15 months without being paid. Yikes. And then we, we had a 15% pay cut coming out of the pandemic. And they want to pay you 
less than what you well, were, we're making back, before the pandemic. Yeah. So right now it was 15% and then we clawed back to 9% below where we were in 2019 and what, what, where the offer stands on the table. Now we'd be at 6% less. So they want to give us 3% more right now, but, but that still puts us 6% behind. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it's, it's bad. And you know, this is the thing. It sucks to stand up and fight and possibly think about striking. Cause then you lose all income. Mm-hmm. But at some point, uh, if you take a deal that's bad enough, you'll never fully recover and get to a place where you were. It, it'll take you decades to get back where you were. So at some point you just have to say enough is enough and, you know, draw a line in the sand and say, this is, you're pushing us too far. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the entire upper management of, of the ballet was restored to pre pandemic wages in the summer of 21. Mm. So it's only the unions, especially when it's us, the, the, the stagehands, the dancers, yeah. Oh, the dancers too. Yeah. The dancers are the worst paid union in the, in the company. That's, that's that, that's one of the hardest careers. I can't even, yeah, that's a whole other conversation. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. And they're, and they're thriving financially or at least, very yes, they're thriving. So it's like, okay. Yeah. Well. Yeah, it's uh it's frustrating, but Sorry, it's, it's a it's a nasty truth of being a musician is yeah. that you have to constantly fight to validate uh-huh. your existence. Mm-hmm. And there's always going to be a portion of the general public that thinks you're overpaid. Oh yeah. Regardless of where you are. I remember I was playing down in Jacksonville symphony and they had just come from a huge lockout and something in the paper, like an op-ed thing. Cause they had released what management was proposing and it was something they were getting paid like 40 grand a year. And it was like proposed that they get paid like 35 grand a year. And I mean, that's, it's hardly livable, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, in the paper, it was an op-ed, and someone wrote in saying, "Getting paid thirty-five thousand dollars to to play an instrument is absurd. Like, how can you expect to get paid for a hobby?" Yeah, and that's that's what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Is like people see it as a hobby. Yeah, you, you know? see that argument every time. And the fact that yeah. newspapers publish that is just so uneducated. I mean, we could go into how the amount that the economy is spurned by the arts every year, and how every local business around and and. <laughs> And yeah, you can talk about the amount of hours and how it's a full-time job and it's not just the amount of time you spend there. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, that's a waste of time trying to argue with those people sometimes. It's just screaming into the void, you know? And so it's, you know, I'd say this is a precautionary tale or a cautionary tale, excuse me, that, you know, if you find yourself in this situation in the future, dear listener, it's difficult, but you have to try to kind of separate it in your brain. It's like, there's only so much you can do. You can't, you can't just sit around and worry all day. You have mm-hmm. to live your life and, you know, do what you can do when the time comes, when there's time for action. But the rest of the time, you just gotta, you have to move on. You have to move forward with your life, not move on, but move forward. Yeah. I mean, we talk about how, I mean, we talk about orchestral life a lot but there's a lot of professional worlds involving playing music for a living. And 
at the end of the day, you, you get some position that you've been chasing your whole life and, and you think it's, it's a misconception that everything is, is easy and like you're super valued and everyone's excited about you all the time. It's like you're a cog in the machine sometimes once you get a position like that and you have to separate your identity from that position and it's so easy to get wrapped up in it, but your worth is not tied into whether, you know, what position you have or how much someone values you, how much they pay you because it can go away and it, it really sucks in these situations. But you, you, that's why, you know, I, it's, it's just incredible what mu- musicians can do together. I've seen it time and time and time again, the power that musicians have once, once they really are on the same page and work together. Cause it's what we do every day. <laughs> so we're, we're already yeah. ready for it. Yeah. We're creative people. So, well, kind of with that in mind, I wanted to pivot to a more positive. I just wanted to ask you what you're looking forward to uh, in the upcoming future, near future, or maybe a little bit down the road. Well, I'm excited about the mouthpiece coming soon to Houghtonhorns.com. I it's it's been a nice little because honestly, my summer didn't feel like a summer in a lot of ways because I was grateful for the work, but uh, you know, we had our festival and. Then we had the International Trombone Festival, and then I I helped run a festival of trombones in Texas, which was right afterwards, and got to play with Cleveland Orchestra a few times. It was really cool, Pittsburgh Symphony. But I was working, you know, and it's good. Summer is hard, as we all know, to to work. So, but I had one little vacation at at the very end. But just being at home for the last couple of weeks has been really nice, and trying to catch up on things, get organized with the podcast. We have. A lot of people booked coming up that we're excited about. I will not tell you who. Stay tuned. Football, 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 football. Tackle football. I'm 2-0 and in my league, and I'm number one in my league right now. Okay, so Nick Schwartz is now doing fantasy football for the first time, and my heart is a flutter. He's so into it. <laughs> no, life's good. I Honestly, I feel... I always feel like a little like heaviness, like when the summer's ending and work's starting because of the cyclical nature of life kind of starts reminding you of things. And I'm thinking about things getting colder and darker sooner. And, you know, it, it just reminds you, you got to be present and you got to be active and in, in doing the things that, you know, make you feel good. And it's easy to get, you know, caught up in it. But I don't know. I, I'm, I know that when I'm proactive and just try to make things happen in my life, usually good things happen. Very good. Very good. Uplifting. Um, (laughs) If you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend and subscribe everywhere you download your podcasts. Also, please consider being a patron at patreon.com slash trombone retreat and also leaving us a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify as it helps us out quite a bit. Special thank you to Houghton Horns at houghtonhorns.com for being a season sponsor. Follow us at trombone retreat on all the social media's media's media's. And our website, TromboneRetreat.com, where you can also join our mailing list on Instagram. Follow Nick at BassTrombone444 and myself at JS.Vera. And when life hands you a basket of potatoes. Do you say potatoes or potatoes? Potatoes. Stuff your potatoes in a sack along with your saris. Call your great-grandma. Wow, if your great-grandma is still alive, that'd be nice. Ask, ask her about times of your. Then peel up those potatoes, put them in a pot, make yourself a nice soup.
and retreat yourself. It always ends up with <laughs> the pattern is if you're feeling something, pick up something, call a distant relative, and then make some sort of food. <laughs> and then retreat. That's usually how it goes. Hey, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. 